Dear Heavenly Merciful Father, Lord, we thank you once again for your love and mercy. And we thank you for this beautiful day. And Lord, we thank you for bringing us here safely and also under the freedom that you've given us to worship you as we see fit. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of this Bible, your truths, your word, your instructions, and most of all, Lord, the demonstration of your character of love. And Lord, now we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit once again to join us for this gathering, to open our hearts and minds, help us to study the history of your church, but also, what does your church look like at end time? Let's study it from the Bible, Lord, and so give us those truths so that we can understand, most of all, what you expect of us. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Millions of people are seeking something. Amen? Something they can hold on to. Something that will give them peace and hope. Many people have tried many things. Many have tried everything the world has to offer. Wealth, fame, power, pleasure, entertainment. Yet they still find their hearts empty and their life filled with problems. Have you ever noticed that the richest, most powerful people seem to be the most miserable? Or their life seems to be the biggest train wrecks? My friends, it's not a coincidence. Because <laughs> they're trying to substitute things of the world for happiness when we know the only happiness is in God, amen? I want to tell you a story. World War II ended in 1945. But for one Japanese soldier, the war continued for another 29 years. Hiru Onoda was 23 years old and he was a second lieutenant in the Japanese Imperial Army. He and several others had taken to the hills on Lubang Island in the Philippines, about 100 miles from Manila. One day they found a leaflet that had been dropped by an aircraft saying the war was over. But Lieutenant Onada didn't believe it. Propaganda. They're trying to trick me into coming out from hiding, get me to surrender. So he stayed up in the hills, and he continued guerrilla activities against the people living on Lubang Island. Eventually it was found out that this fellow hadn't returned because some of those others in the hills with him had done so. They went back and they were telling people, hey, he's still out there. Many years later, a man from Japan was in Lubang for the sole purpose of finding Lieutenant Onada. And he finally tracked him down and he said, Lieutenant, the war is over. In fact, it's been over for 29 years. You can come home now. Lieutenant Onada said, there's no way I'm coming home. I'm not abandoning my post unless my commanding officer comes here and tells me that I'm relieved of my duty. Imagine the problem if the, lieutenant, or if the commanding officer had gotten killed. My friends, that poor fellow was back in Japan, that commanding officer. He was making a living as a bookseller three decades after the war. He'd been out of the military for many years. But he realized what he had to do. And he made his way to Lubang Island in the Philippines. And he searched out Lieutenant Onada. And he told him, you can go home. And Huro Onada did so. He received a hero's welcome after 29 years after the war ended. He was back from the wilderness. Came back from the wilderness. 
My friends, in the word of God, we are told that God's church would come back from the wilderness. Just like that Japanese soldier did. What does the Bible teach about discovering God's truth for today? We've been studying it the whole time, five weeks. And we have shown prophecy is pointed to this time. Amen? Our times, end times. Well, does the Bible also talk about a church on earth at the end times? A church that is solid, solidly grounded in God and His Bible. As I said, there's a genuine hunger for true, genuine Christianity in the hearts of thousands, millions. A longing for something more than they have today. And my friends, that hunger isn't just for a church. It's a hunger for Bible-believing people. A hunger for the living Christ and His truth. It's for people that base their lives on the Word of God and only the Word of God. There's our slide. Thought maybe I skipped it. That's why this is our theme. That's exactly why. Because people are searching for truth. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. That's the reason for the theme. We want to know what God's Word says, and that's it. That's enough. Materialism. How's that working out for us? My friends, things can never satisfy the longing of the soul. Amen? God's souls can't get enough stuff. And when we get stuff, what happens? It's not the right stuff. We want different stuff. We get the different stuff and we want to, oh no, that's not right. We want the stuff I had before. Or new stuff. Pleasure. Pleasure has not satisfied. My friends, entertainment cannot satisfy. They can't. If you are entertained, what, what do you have to do the next time? Be a little bit more entertained. And a little bit more entertained. Those of you that have heard me preach in church here, I preach about that in a sermon. If a preacher tries to entertain, they're headed for a path that's not good, right? Because i got to entertain a little bit more in the next sermon, and i got to entertain a little bit more in the next. Pretty soon, I've run, I'm not, we're not that clever. We're not. The latest gadgets, technology. How's that working out? i got two of them. My friends, they don't satisfy. They're like anchors. There's a longing within to know God. There's a hunger for the Word of God. There's a hunger for Bible truth. Now, does God call a people on earth today His church? As you look down through the history of the Christian church, God has always had a people proclaiming truth to that generation. He always has had a people that have stuck to the Bible and have preached the Bible. In the days of Noah, God had a special message for all of humanity. And God, in his love and in his patience and his long-suffering, he called Noah to appeal to men and women to enter the ark of safety. And in that patience and in that love, he had Noah preach for how long? 120 years. 
It wasn't, you know what, I got a quick sermon, and if you miss it, you're out. God, that's not how God is. 120 years. Everybody focuses on the building of the ark, and they skip the part about Noah being a preacher. The majority rejected God's call, but God still had a few faithful people who entered that ark. You see, my friends, there was a call to step out from the majority. Step out from the popular masses. A call to take a step in faith, to trust God. The call was to get in the ark. Instead, they ridiculed him. They made fun of him. (laughs) What's an ark? Rain? What's rain? My friends, it was a call to obey God. God said, get in the ark. That should have been enough. That should have been enough. In the Old Testament, we just mentioned it in the question that I answered about Abraham. In the Old Testament, God called Abraham out of the popular majority. Called him away from his comfort. His family. Turn to Genesis chapter 26. Page 23. Genesis chapter 26, verse 2. Genesis chapter 26, verse 2. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Don't go to the popular spot. Don't go to Egypt. God called him out of the popular culture and called him to submit and to follow God completely. He called Abraham to be separate. To not follow the whims of the world. Verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. My friends, the Bible tells us that God kept his word. He said, Abraham, if you do what I ask you, I will bless you. God blesses Abraham with a mighty nation. Amen? Moses, God chose Moses to lead his people, to be faithful to him and to keep his commandments. In fact, he chose Moses to do what? To restore the law back to the people. It wasn't new law. It was to restore the law. In the days of ancient Israel, God calls out a faithful, obedient people. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Page 177. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Notice obedience and love. Obedience and love. God's chosen people. In the days of Noah... A people who loved God kept his commandments and responded to his instructions and they got in the ark. In the days of Abraham, a people who loved God stepped out from the majority, kept his commandments. In the days of ancient Israel, a people who loved God and kept his commandments and God called them his church. 
his chosen people. In the days of the New Testament, Peter preached powerfully. 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost. Amen? Praise the Lord. As they were baptized, they stepped out. They became separate from the world. They became God's special people to keep his commandments, to obey God. My friends, it wasn't just a bath. It was a commitment. It was a declaration. It was a covenant. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Page 1163. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy, a holy nation, his own special people. My friends, in the days of Noah, did God have a special people? Absolutely. In the days of Abraham, did God have a special people? He certainly did. What about the days of Noah? What about the days of Moses? He had a special, he's always had a people that are true to him, that follow him no matter where he goes, where he leads. You see, in the days of Peter, he had a special people too, amen? They got into the water. They committed to God. God's people are always characterized by obedience. Obedience. They loved him enough to obey him. Not to get his love. It's an outpouring of their love for him. It's a demonstration of their love. The special people are carved out of the majority. They stand out from the rest of the world. And they're always a commandment-keeping people. They keep the commandments of God. Peter continues, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Special people, God calls them out of darkness into his light, from error to truth, from commandment-breaking to commandment-keeping. Calls them out. When you take a step to follow truth and become part of God's commandment-keeping people, you do not deny any truth that you believed in the past. You accept God's truth. You accept his word. When some people come to a series of meetings like this and they learn a new truth, it brings on struggle. It brings on an inner battle. They discover new truths from God's word, and it produces conflict. Why does it produce conflict? Because it calls them to change. We don't like to change, do we? It's hard. God's word calls us to change. A battle ensues in their minds. They wonder to follow new truth. Do I have to deny everything I learned in the past? My friends, certainly not. Look back at your past and say, thank God for that past, for that experience. My friends, every church has some truth, some light from God. 
Remember when we went through the history of the truth and God revealed incremental light to the reformers. While we may appreciate our past, we commit ourselves to following all the truth God has for us today. If you were brought up as a Methodist or a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Pentecostal, why not thank God for the path that he's led you on? And then tell him, I will now accept further light because you've blessed me with further truth. You've opened up more light unto me. You see, my friends, in taking this step to follow Jesus and to become part of his special commandment-keeping people, you are not denying anything that was true in your past heritage. You're just leaving off the errors. You're refining. You're you're losing the errors that you accepted because they were handed down to you out out of tradition. But now, as you learn new truths... God's calling you to decision. I've revealed this to you. What are you going to do with it? Leaving off falsehoods that have slipped into the church. We've spent a lot of time in this series exploring and exposing the falsehoods that have come into the church for centuries. At no time have I stood up here and attacked any church. Have I? Absolutely not. I hope not. In fact, When I've revealed those falsehoods in those churches, I let their words speak for themselves. So that it wasn't me pointing the finger. Amen? My friends, you're simply dropping off the baggage that is not in harmony with God's word. You're walking ahead in the fullness of truth. Amen? When you find the truth, look for a church that teaches that truth. Amen? That's just simple logic. And when you found the truth in God's word in the Bible, then like I said, go find a church that squares up with the Bible. Now wait a minute. First we need to figure out, how does the Bible define church? It's a good question, isn't it? What's the Bible say about that? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Page 1141. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. I want you to notice, first of all, Paul is very specific about why he is writing. He's writing to tell us what church should look like. He's telling us what the church should look like. And the church of living God should be the pillar and ground of the truth. In fact, what he's saying is is the church should be the custodian of truth. The protector and the promoter of truth. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 17. Page 1046. Speaking of truth, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So what is Jesus saying we need to sanctify by? His word. And that his word is truth. Turn to John chapter 8. 
Let's back up a little bit. John chapter 8, verse 32, page 1035. Jesus once again, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What will make you free according to Jesus? Truth. What did we learn in John chapter 17? What is truth? My word. So what will make you free? His word. Amen? Now somebody says, oh, wait a minute, Dan. We can't know the truth. It's not possible to know the truth. But what does Jesus say? You shall know the truth. So Jesus says it is possible to know the truth. Amen? The Bible tells us only Jesus can set us free, and he does it through the transforming power of his word. There is no freedom like the freedom that Jesus gives us. My friends, if we come to God with an open mind, with a seeking spirit, with an honest heart, he will reveal the truth to us. Amen? But if we come locked in our own opinions, set in our own ways, already with our minds made up, he is unable to reveal the truth to us because we're closed to it. We've closed our minds to being able to understand the truth at that point. If we approach God's word only desiring to prove our position, we will not discover his will. Our own thoughts will influence what we read in his word. If we say, Lord, show me the truth, even if it's different than what I already believe. That's a hard one, isn't it? Show me the truth as long as I agree with it. How many times have we gone to church? Pastor's over here smiling. How many times we go to church, a pastor says something, a preacher says something up here, and you're like, I don't like that guy now. I liked him last Sabbath. Because what he said last Sabbath, I agreed with. This Sabbath, oh, he stepped on my feet. God's the same way. My friends, don't come to the truth looking to prove your point. Come to the truth with an open heart and open mind. And let God tell you what the truth is. Let him show you what the truth is. I promise you he will reveal his will. He will show us the truth from his word. He will lead you to those if you have an open heart and mind. The book of Revelation describes God's faithful people who will cling to truth no matter the cost. The 12th chapter specifically describes more clearly than any place in the Bible the history of the Christian church. We've spent significant time in Revelation chapter 12. It describes God's plan. It describes God's people down through the ages. It also describes Satan's vicious attacks. And he breaks them down into four distinct episodes. The book of Revelation reveals to us without a shadow of a doubt the identifying characteristics of this special group of people that God calls his church the end of time. The Bible tells us what to look for. The Bible begins in Revelation chapter 12 by describing a woman, remember? A pure woman. Described as the bride of Christ. Remember what a woman represents in Bible prophecy? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Page 1117. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The Apostle Paul presents the church as Jesus' bride. He uses the marriage symbolism. In Revelation chapter 12, they, God continues the description when he reveals to us the battle between good and evil. Turn to Revelation chapter 12, page 1182. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. In fact, it goes on to tell us. The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Just so you know, I didn't make that up. Who deceives the whole world. How much of the world? He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So episode one, Satan rebels against God in heaven. Episode one, Satan leads rebellion. Remember, war in heaven? We spent a whole night studying that. There was a battle for supremacy in the very courts of heaven. And what was the center of that battle? Anybody remember? Worship, amen. Worship. But Christ wins and Satan loses, amen? And as a result, Satan's kicked out of heaven, cast out. So in episode number one, God is victorious. Centuries pass by in episode two. Back to Revelation chapter 12, verse four and five. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. The tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, in episode 2, Satan focuses his energy on destroying Jesus. The devil's angry. And he stands before the woman. And remember? Last Sabbath morning, the lesson... Remember, Satan doesn't stop. He keeps changing his attack mode. He keeps changing his strategy. So here he changes his tactics. He's always on the prowl to try to defeat God and God's people. Revelation continues. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who was that male child? Jesus, amen. Question. Did Satan try to destroy Jesus when he was born? Absolutely. Herod passed a decree that all male children were to be killed. He didn't know who Messiah was, so he was going to get them all. If I get them all, I'm going to get the one I'm looking for. Revelation continues, that her child was caught up to God in his throne. So what happened in the Bible? The Holy Family flees to Egypt, Remember? And God preserved them there, protected them. You see, Satan couldn't destroy Christ. In the wilderness, years later, Satan appears as an angel of light, tempting Jesus in hopes of destroying him. And once again, Jesus wins. Amen? Satan loses. On the cross, 
Satan tries to destroy Christ, but our Lord triumphs. He says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he committed himself to the Father. Trusted the will of God. He went into the grave and was raised from the dead. Remember what Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 says, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. And we see in the Bible, his mission of salvation was accomplished. And Jesus ascends to heaven, caught up to God. Caught up to God. Who remembers why Christ ascended to heaven on the resurrection day? Anybody remember? It was to present his sacrifice to the Father to verify that it would be acceptable payment for all of our sins. Was this enough? Does this satisfy the sentence of death? So episode two, Satan tried to destroy Christ. Satan leads the church and state to unify. Remember, I've talked a lot about that. Satan likes to put the church and the state together. In fact, the Jewish church leaders have to actually join with the Roman government in order to kill Jesus. You see, the church couldn't do it. They didn't have the power. Only the government of Rome had the power to take life. In fact, Rome didn't want to deal with Jesus. You deal with You guys got a church problem. I don't want to see this guy. They kept coming back, coming back, coming back, and lying and lying. Finally, they needed Rome because only Rome could do the killing. Once again, Christ wins, Satan loses. Christ conquers sin at the cross. He conquers death at the resurrection. He proves Satan's accusations against God are false. Christ defeats evil and provides us a path out of destruction. God provided a way of safety, amen? Now episode three. Satan turns his wrath on the woman, God's church. Satan now leads persecution against the church. He attacks the leaders of the Christian church. He's trying to undermine the work of the gospel. He's trying to not allow the word to grow, the following to grow. All but one of the disciples died a martyr's death. Some were beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Anyone know which apostle did not die a martyr's death? John. John the beloved. John the revelator. But Satan tried to kill John too, amen? Even trying to boil him in a pot of oil. God protected John and called on him to deliver God's end-time message to the world, the book of Revelation. So Satan attacks God's church. Church and state united in the days of Constantine. For a while, the church enjoyed the state's favor and became popular. Grew rapidly. You see, the church and the state at that time needed each other. And they both prospered. And it was at the expense of believers. Then persecution followed. As the church and state united, Satan attacked 
fiercely persecuting the true believers of God. As I, as I covered last Sabbath morning, why would this widely popular massive church and state union be concerned about this little bitty body of believers? Why would they care? They have all the power in the world. They got the most powerful army on the planet. They're rich beyond wildest imaginations. They control more land than anybody had controlled at that time. Because this little bitty group stood as a rebuke to the open sins of the church. Their very existence rebuked them because they were following God. They were following the word of God. Their very existence shined light onto the church's transgressions. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So when Satan attempts to destroy the church in the dark ages, the woman, the church, flees into the wilderness. My friends, God would preserve his church by providing a place of sanctuary for his church. A place not only to be protected, but a place to grow. Revelation continues that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Feed means what? Grow, nourish. 1,260 days. Remember, we covered that. In Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year, right? We see that in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, and Numbers chapter 14, verse 34. So the church is in the wilderness for 1,260 years, according to Bible prophecy. During this time, the popular church and the state have united. Church power continues to grow. The church becomes the undisputed power of the entire world. It yields both ecclesiastical and civil power. Entire nations are brought under her heel. As we've studied in previous lectures, the Dark Ages begin in 538 and end in 1798. And God's true church during this period of time is in the wilderness where they have faithful men and women clinging to the truths of God's word in seclusion. These people stay true to the word of God. They follow his Bible. They grow and raise families under the leadership of Christ. Throughout this time, though, the church is intensely persecuted. Not only were there millions killed for their faith in Jesus, but the ruling church itself became dark. It became dark with the teachings that had no basis in the Bible. While the pure teachings of the word of God were crowded out by tradition, by paganism, by apostasy. Infant baptism replaces baptism by immersion. My friends, remember our discussion on this. Does the Bible speak of infant baptism? No. Transubstantiation replaces the Lord's Supper. Transubstantiation says the bread and the wine are the actual bodies and blood of Christ. It's not in the Bible. They're symbols. The immortality of the soul replaces the simple, clear, biblical teaching that a person sleeps in death until the resurrection. Confession to God 
was replaced with confession to a priest, to man. Many other false teachings come into the church during this 1,260 years. The Bible Sabbath was replaced by the venerable day of the sun. My friends, while the ruling church claimed this was from God, God has granted no power to the church to change his law. The church, the real church, was in the wilderness. Now it's true that some Christians and pockets of Christians that clung to the truth of God's word at that time, they were there, they were around, but for the most part, God's church was in the wilderness. The reformers, remember they were persecuted for their faith. They openly declared the popular church to be the enemy of God. They openly declared the Roman papacy to be the Antichrist. We've read their quotes. These brave men rediscovered the Bible. And they clung to it unwaveringly. Many of them were in fact killed for the sole crime of following God's word. That was their crime. Even during this dark time, God had faithful men and women whose minds were bound by the principles of God. Men and women who would follow God even if the heavens may fall. Men and women who would happily go to the stake, singing, rather than wander from the true light of the world, Jesus. Many of them did. Has anybody ever heard of the man called St. Patrick? Anybody associated with Ireland? Did you know that this Protestant man was a Sabbath keeper? Several hundred years after this 1260-day period was over, he was keeping the Sabbath. Think about that. The church in Africa was a Sabbath-keeping church all the way down to the time of the Reformation until white missionaries brought the Africans the new but not very enlightened way of worshiping God. Not on God's day, but on what one of their languages even refers to as the white man's day. They knew the Sabbath. They knew the Bible. This church in Africa had the truth, and it took outsiders to lead them away from this truth. My friends, the church was in the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12, episode 3, Satan tries to destroy Christ's church. Once again, though, Christ wins. Satan loses. Amen? I love this story. The wilderness period ends in 1798 with the capture of the Pope by Napoleon's general Berthier. God's church would come out of the wilderness Come back into the open. God would once again expand light unto the world. Amen? This is where prophecy becomes fascinating. Sometime after 1798, God would raise up his end time people. The beast would receive its mortal wound, releasing the chains of isolation from God's church. God's church would be set free. God would bring back his church from the wilderness because he was preparing a people to get ready to meet Jesus when Jesus came again in the clouds of glory. 
A church that would teach Bible truth. A church that represents God's character and represents God's mission. Now, what would that church look like? Once again, does the Bible tell us? Absolutely. In the last days of earth's history, the church is back. God's people in the end of time have come back from the wilderness. How many have heard the word remnant? Amen. The word remnant means something that remains. If you have a piece of cloth at the end of a bolt of cloth, when all the other cloth is gone, that little piece that remains is called a remnant. It's like the original, but it's what's left over down at the end. You wouldn't be surprised that the remnant is that little piece down at the end that remains faithful. You see, truth is always in the minority. Remember, we've talked about that too. The Word of God says that many are called, but few are chosen. And Revelation chapter 13 says that virtually the entire world would wonder after the beast. In a time of compromise, God would have a remnant back from the wilderness. And this remnant would be drawn together by one thing, the truths of God's word. A group of people that is relying on Jesus Christ, relying on the fact that they've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. A group of people that choose to follow the Lamb wherever he leads. Choose. These people will be raised up by God's power to take the good news message in the last days of earth's most remote places all the way to the finish line of earth's history when God's people are going to be crowned with the crowns of victory. Amen? My friends, the Bible tells us there will be a people that remain, a remnant. When the whole world follows after the beast, there's going to be a people who remain. When the world goes after tradition, there will be a people who remain. Now I want to submit to you tonight that if God has a remnant down at the close of time, wouldn't you want to be part of that remnant? I would. My friends, there's no question about it. But how do you find that remnant? What you should do is go to the Word of God. Pray. And ask the Lord, Lord, in the Bible, do you describe how to make your last day remnant? How do you, how do you bring this body together? How do I become part of that body? Well, here's what we find in the Bible. We're going to find God's chosen people. Just like in the days of Noah and Abraham and Moses. You see, God always has a commandment keeping people. Remember Lot and his family, minus one, trusted God and were delivered from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like in the days of the New Testament, as in the days of the Dark Ages, God would have a special commandment-keeping people that stay true to him. God always has a people that stay true to him. God's word describes God's end-time people. In fact, the book of Revelation describes the identifying characteristics of those people. And here's the words he uses. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Page 1182. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. 
And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Who's the woman? Church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are the descriptions of God's people. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. My friends, Abraham kept the commandments, amen? Moses kept God's commandments. The Israelites kept God's commandments. The New Testament church kept God's commandments. The book of Revelation describes the bride of Christ as a Bible-believing, Christ-centered, grace-filled movement that keeps the commandments of God. That's what Revelation describes. Here are the characteristics that the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation gives us to identify God's people today in the end times. Keeps the commandments of God. It says they keeps the commandments of God. Remember, God's law is the transcription of his character. God's character is love, pure love. So his law is the very definition of love. It's the law of liberty. God's people will reflect his character. So they will love and keep his law. It also tells us that God's end-time people will have the testimony of Jesus. Now notice, this people will keep the commandments of God. God will raise up a people that love him so much that they will obey him. Remember in the heart of God's Ten Commandment law, we discovered the very basis of worship. We worship God because we are his creatures. We are the crowning glory of his creation, and he is our creator. Amen? And the Sabbath command leads us to worship him as the creator of heaven and earth. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, page 71. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. My friends, at the end time, God's people will be a commandment-keeping people, which includes keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. It's in the commandments. These are the people of the new covenant, and God actually says of them, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, page 1154, it says, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. God says, I'm going to write their, my laws in their hearts. It's going to be a part of their character. These people will sense God's ten laws, his ten commandments. They will realize that they're the best way to live. These laws actually will describe life at its best. And these people will realize that, recognize that, represent that. Now, my friends, I talked about this in the last message. God's people are not super saints. They're weak. They falter. They make mistakes. But God has placed his law in their minds so they know it. And he put it in their hearts so they'll love it. Hearts and mind. The book of Revelation describes this last day people 
as having two characteristics. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's this testimony of Jesus thing? Commandments are pretty easy for us to figure out, right? We've spent a lot of time on that. What's this testimony of Jesus? Well, the Bible describes it. Remember in 12, 17, it says, have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. When we want to interpret the Bible, what do we do? We let the Bible interpret itself, amen? Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. There that is. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what's the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of prophecy. Revelation chapter 12 says, The bride of Christ is a Bible-believing church that loves Jesus Christ, that keeps his commandments, and has the testimony of Jesus or has the spirit of prophecy within its midst. My friends, God's last day people will be guided by the gift of prophecy. The Bible talks about the prophetic gift in God's last day church. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, page 1099. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is waiting for the coming of Jesus. That church that's waiting for the coming of Jesus will come behind in no gift. Jesus says, that that church will have all gifts. And one of those gifts is the gift of prophecy. If the gift of prophecy was needed in the first century church to guide it and to protect it from error, it will certainly be needed in the last day church. Amen? Paul is telling us in Corinthians that the end time church will have all spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy. Paul saying that all of the gifts of the Spirit will be manifest in God's church. You see, God's church will be a Spirit-filled church, amen? A powerful church. We will see miraculous healings from time to time in God's church, if God so chooses. There will be dramatic breakthroughs. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. Thousands will come to His spiritual community. God's church is a spirit-filled church that impacts the world. It will touch the entire world. You see, God's end-time church will spread the good news of Christ to the whole world. In a last-ditch effort to enable people, to call people to choose their side. Remember, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world. So the true church will be a worldwide body committed to Christ and obedient to his word. Turn me to Matthew chapter 28. Page 967. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations. The word of God is telling us that all nations will come to a Bible believing. Grace-filled 
commandment-keeping, Sabbath-keeping, spirit-empowered movement. Jesus said, go. Now, my friends, how hard of a command is that to understand? Go. Jesus says, go and share the truth. Go. Continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Notice the teaching part. I mentioned that earlier. Jesus commands his believers to teach others in his ways. To teach others about his expectations. But most importantly, to teach others about his promises. Amen? And finally, he says, and I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. My friends, it's one of the greatest promises of the entire passage. Jesus says, I will be with you to the very end. I will see you to the end. In every age, God will have a people who respond to his grace, who commit their lives to him, who obediently follow him into the watery graves of baptism. They become part of his church, a special called out people who are committed to follow the truth and the truth only. A people who will stand out from the world. Remember we talked about separate? God's people are separate. A people who are called by God, to be his messengers of hope. His messengers of peace. Most of all, his messengers of victory. Revelation chapter 14 describes a special last day movement. Now, it would stand to reason that if God has an end time people, can we believe that they will be proclaiming God's end time message? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want you to think about the power and the significance of this. You see, Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 describes that message. It refers to it as the everlasting gospel. The good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. My friends, God's church will proclaim the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen? It will proclaim the everlasting gospel. And what's contained in that everlasting gospel? Remember the judgment hour message. The warning against receiving the mark of the beast. God's call to keep the seventh day Sabbath and to keep it holy. The everlasting gospel. And now, where would it proclaim that everlasting gospel? You know, there's some churches that exist on one street or in one city, or even one state. But Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Where's this message going to go? The whole world. My friends, can this be a little Small, non-denominational movement. Not in meet Revelation's description. This is a worldwide, global movement that is preaching the gospel to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. We are told that God's gospel, his message, would go to the whole world. 
which suggests that God's message is going to be carried to the world by a remnant that has to be a worldwide body. It can't exist in little pockets here and there. It has to be committed to taking the message all around God's beautiful earth before Jesus returns. It has to be its mission. Revelation 14 continues, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Remember what it means to fear God? It doesn't mean to be afraid. It means reverence. It means respect. So how do we give glory to God? To glorify God means to honor him in how we live, both in our diet and our lifestyles. Whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told, Know you not that you are bought with a price? Therefore, glorify Christ in your body. A health message. God's health. Called back to treating God's body like his temple. Why should we do this? Because the hour of his judgment has come. The time of sorting has come, has started. My friends, God is separating the wheat and the tares. He's separating the sheep and the goats. He's placing people on his right hand and on his left. The time of decision has come. The message flying in the midst of heaven represents a church. It represents a movement which calls men and women to the fact that we are accountable to God for all of our actions. You see, in an age of irresponsibility, God is calling for moral responsibility. He's calling for obedience. God's final message for mankind declares the hour of his judgment has come. You see, my friends, this is a special time in earth's history. No more business as usual. No more pleasures as usual. The hour of God's judgment has come. That message continues in Revelation 14. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's that word again. What's the basis of the great controversy? The battle between good and evil? Worship. Remember, the battle of the ages always centers on worship. Which side are you going to choose? Who is it called to, who are we called to worship? The creator. My friends, God's final call is a call to worship the creator. We're being called to decide, will you worship the creature or will you worship the creator? The Bible tells us that God's end time church will worship the creator. The Sabbath is also part of God's last day message. It's a call to come apart from the world every Sabbath, every seventh day to worship God. All of this is part of God's end time message. All of this is part of an urgent message. All of this is part of a last day message for God's last day movement. Right now, today. God invites us to be part of his last day movement. He invites us to be part of a special people. A worldwide communion that is keeping God's commandments. This movement is Bible-based. 
the Word of God. It's a Sabbath-keeping Adventist movement. Adventist means the soon coming of God, the soon coming of Jesus. My friends, don't get embroiled in teachings that are incompatible with the Jesus of Scripture. Don't get caught up in the teachings that sound good or make you feel good. But don't follow the Word of God. You see, Satan's number one tactic is he wants us confused. He wants us deceived. He wants us to follow the traditions of man because he's the author of those. He's behind those. God's true church will meet the identifying characters of the true church in Revelation chapter 12. It will recapture the pure faith of the disciples. My friends, this is more than denominationalism. It is recapturing Bible truths that have been lost sight of. It's believing in the Bible and the Bible only. God's church, as we've seen, will have the dual characteristics of keeping God's commandments and having the gift of prophecy. My friends, I'm going to show you right now that the Seventh-day Adventist church qualifies on both of these accounts. We're also shown that God's true church will be a worldwide mission-driven movement. It will be a movement that goes to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. It will be a movement that accepts men and women of all races, all language groups, all creeds. A movement that does not believe that God is the God of only one race or people. It will be a worldwide movement. Did you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the largest international Protestant mission movement in the world. It is in over 200 countries listed by the United Nations today. Another characteristic, God's true church will call people to total commitment to Christ. It will be a movement that says, fear God. It will call men and women to total commitment to Jesus. God's true church will lead people to the Bible Sabbath. It will be a movement that calls God's people at the end of time to his Bible Sabbath and to worship the creator. It will reveal to the world God's mark and Satan's mark. It will reveal the seal of God and it will reveal the mark of the beast. And it will point people to choose God's mark, not the devil's mark. Number six, it will encourage people to give their bodies to Christ. It will have a health message that follows the Bible, a Bible-based health message. It will urge us and people to follow the Bible and to give up alcohol and tobacco and unclean foods. It will be a movement that says, fear God and give glory to him. My friends, God's end-time church will proclaim a return to Bible-based health message that brings glory to God's crowning creative glory, our bodies, which he himself refers to as the temple of God. We were made in the likeness of God. Do we treat ourselves like that? Number seven, this church will make a final appeal to accept truth. 
You see, my friends, I am a Seventh-day Adventist because I have honestly studied the Bible. And I have looked at the facts of Scripture. And I want to be part of a Bible-based movement. I was not born into this church. I came into this church in my middle age. I was searching for truth. The Seventh-day Adventist church is a Bible-based movement. And I want to be part of a church that teaches salvation is not by works, but by grace. My friends, the Seventh-day Adventist church upholds Jesus Christ. You see, I want to be part of a movement that follows in the footsteps of the Bible heroes like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Matthew, Mark, John. And they all kept the commandments of God. And they did His will. My friends, the Seventh-day Adventist church does that. I want to be part of a movement that understands that our bodies are the temple of God that calls us to glorify God in our body because we are physical, mental, and spiritual beings. The Bible says that. What we put into our bodies affects our spiritual lives. What we do to our bodies affects our decision-making abilities, especially at a time of great deception. You see, my friends, I want to be part of a movement that calls men and women just like Christ did when he said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Just like the Ten Commandments say to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You see, I want to be part of a movement that can look at the book of Revelation honestly. It's not afraid of it. I want to be part of a movement that doesn't dodge texts in the Bible. I ask you sincerely tonight to reflect on all the questions you've asked me. I've answered everyone, except for the ones that I'll answer this Sabbath. And I've answered them from the Bible. That God's movement should not dodge the hard questions. I want to be part of a movement that actually reads God's word. All of it. Not just the parts we like. Remember I said it's not buffet Christianity. I want to be part of a movement that sees the first sentence of the book of Revelation and knows that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, that knows it's not a closed book, that knows it was given for us at this time. My friends, the Seventh-day Adventist church is moving powerfully throughout the entire world. It's the fastest-growing Protestant denomination in the entire world, and it's the only one growing in the United States. All the other ones are losing members. This isn't about being popular, though. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message? People are stirred. They're searching for truth. They want truth. As I get ready to close, I want to tell you a story. In 2004, a very exciting evangelistic satellite evangelistic series was held in Rwanda. And an unprecedented number of 10,000 people were baptized. Wow, 10,000. Well, in 2016, more than 100,000 were baptized as a result of 2,227 simultaneous meetings held throughout the country. It was one of the largest evangelistic events 
and baptisms in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And one of the largest in history of any Christian church. What made the difference? Why was this so big? You see, my friends, God's people were mobilized and prepared to preach 2,227 evangelistic meetings all at the same time across an entire country. Think about the coordination. Our church knows what it's like to do one. 2,227 at the same time. God's people were inspired by a new church initiative called Total Member Involvement that involved all members in the spreading of the gospel message. Lives were changed. God's spirit was felt in a powerful way across all of Rwanda, which is referred to as the Switzerland of Africa. The gospel message has brought hope and joy in Jesus to its people. Interest in Bible truth has been so great that currently 1,000 one-day churches are being built to accommodate all these new members. My friends, God works even through his people may not be the most popular. They may not be the most well-known. But I want you to reflect on this. I mentioned this in one other message. How popular and how widespread was God's church when Jesus himself was walking on this earth? My friends, I've been to India twice. Besides them being a loving people, they're hungry. The crowds are staggering. I'm nobody. It wasn't me that they were coming for. They're hungry for truth. Thousands of people, 103 degrees every day, 95% humidity. They walked for miles to come to the meetings. Again, not because of me are searching for God. My friends, the Lord is stirring people. I faced legal obstacles to even be able to speak there because I wasn't known. But God made it happen. I've seen pictures in person just like this. I've been there. The Lord is moving, and he's moving through the Seventh-day Adventist church throughout the world. God's church is not in the majority. You can never base truth on a majority vote. Did the majority go in the ark, or did they stay outside? My friends, the majority was outside the ark. In the days of Jesus, did the majority say, take that man off the cross? No, they said, crucify him. That was the majority. You see, most of the time, the majority has not been right when it comes to understanding Bible truth. God's church does not need the approval of popular religious leaders. My friends, God's church is not to be a human-led church. It is to be a Christ-led church. Truth is truth whether religious leaders accept it as truth or not. If someone tells you there is no truth, I tell you to answer them, then how do I know what you just said is true? Every time there's a series of meetings like this, people come to these meetings And the Spirit of God works on their hearts. And they discover new truths from the Bible. They get a little troubled. And they go back to their religious leaders and they ask them about these new truths they're learning. My friends, the real issue is not what those religious leaders think. The real issue is what's in God's Word. What does it say? Instead of running to man for man's opinion, why not do it God's way for once? 
Run to God, not to man. Get on your knees and pray to him. Open his word. Read it for yourself. Change your life to a plain, just saith the Lord. My friends, are you a truth seeker? Deep within your heart, do you long for truth? Are you searching for a worldwide movement that will follow all of God's instructions? Maybe you've been coming to these meetings and there's been a struggle, a conflict with what you had previously believed. Maybe you're struggling to how they align with what you've been told before. My friends, you're convicted about the truths you have found. You sense the Holy Spirit is leading you. My friends, I ask you tonight to ask yourself, are you willing to say, Jesus, today I'm going to give up the battle. I'm going to open my heart and I'm going to walk in your truth. I'm going to take a step to follow you. My friends, it's often not easy to take that first step, is it? That first step is the hardest. But God calls us and he bids us to follow Jesus according to the Bible. And therefore, what we want to do, what we should do is find a church that is teaching as close to the Bible as we possibly can find. And what happens then is that your experience will grow with God. You'll follow one new thing and new things will develop. God will reveal new truths. Your walk with Christ will strengthen. I want you to think of this verse in Proverbs. But the path of the just is, ju is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. That means that as you follow God, the light on your pathway will get brighter and brighter and brighter as you grow. Now, friends, I've had people say to me, but I really believe the Lord led me to that church that I'm in now. And my friends, I'd say, absolutely, I'm sure he did. But do you think he led you there so you could stay there forever? Maybe you're just passing through as you grow. Maybe there were some, thumb, some things you needed to learn there. Maybe that was the best possible place at that time for your spiritual growth and development. But the path of the just is like the shining sun. It gets brighter and brighter until the perfect day. My friends, it's called a walk because it's a journey. And if you want to advance you may have had a phenomenal teacher in the third or fourth grade, right? Are you still in the third or fourth grade? No, you eventually left that classroom. You advanced a couple of grades. You found out there was more to learn. My friends, it's just like that in the Christian life. We need to grow. We need to advance. It means shifting classrooms, shifting teachers, growing, because you want to follow the light that God is shining on your pathway. You see, my friends, history is full of examples like this. The church was in the wilderness, remember? The pure church that the disciples led in the beginning began to spread the gospel to people all over the world. And then what happened? In came the corruption. In came the traditions of man and the teachings of man. The church was in the wilderness. Remember what happened? John Wycliffe came along. They called him the morning star of the Reformation. John Huss in Bohemia, in what we call today the Czech Republic. He advanced a new life. He challenged the establishment's teachings. 
And Luther brought in salvation by grace. Light continued to shine down upon God's people. And God continued to draw people back to the Bible. Finally, God has raised up an end-time church. And that church will follow the Bible and the Bible only. God is calling his people out of Babylon. They're calling his church to be his bride. His church. His bride. My friends, God is calling his people out together. He is calling them out. And Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's calling them out. He's calling them to him. Jesus wants to gather his sheep back together. You see, my friend, Satan has done a masterful job of dividing or scattering so that in Christianity, there's massive confusion. You've got the scarlet woman leading people away, leading people into confusion, leading people into tradition. And then God says, I'm raising up a remnant, that which remains. I'm raising up a church that will follow my word, that will follow my lead. God's earnest desire is to lead people to make a full surrender and to follow him wherever he leads. Jesus spoke and he said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Notice he says, you don't just have to know them and then you can do whatever you want. He says, if you know them, then you'll be happy if you do them. My friends, the Bible is very clear. God's word describes his end time church. And my friends, that church is the Seventh-day Adventist church. The Seventh-day Adventist church meets all the criteria as described in the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I am a Seventh-day Adventist because God's word led me here. I am a Seventh-day Adventist because God has called me to join his last day movement. He said, when God calls you, you must follow. I felt no other alternative but to follow the convictions that the Holy Spirit placed on my heart. Ladies and gentlemen, truth beckons you to follow it. Why not make your decision tonight to follow the truth of God's word all the way? Why not make your decision right now? There is an unparalleled joy that comes from following God's truth. God invites you to that decision right now. I have never met a person who said, I wished I would have waited a little bit longer before making a decision for Christ. I've met many people, though, who have said, I wish I would have responded years ago. My friends, this is your hour. This is your moment. Speak to Jesus. Say, yes, Jesus, I will follow your truth wherever you lead me. My friends, I call on you tonight to answer God's call. God has shined light on your life. He has shared truth with you. And now he is calling you to a decision. My friends, you're not answering me. You're not answering this church. We are simply a messenger. Your decision is between you and God and you and God alone. I urge you to pray to God. I urge you to speak with God. My friends, God is calling each one of us to join his remnant people. I ask you, I urge you to search your hearts. My friends are going to hand out a decision card. A decision card. You've seen a couple of these. I've only handed out a couple of them. We'll hand out this card. I'll go through it, and then we'll close with a word of prayer. 
When you get this card, put your name on top. If you have any questions.